You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, this week I started a new thing. I signed up for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a form of martial arts. Uh, Now, like boxing or Muay Thai, which are really more upper body and striking intensive, Jiu-Jitsu is just the opposite. It's lower body. It's a grappling sport. Uh, You don't really use your fists or your elbows or your knees. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu is all on the ground. Like so far, I've done four or five classes, and literally, uh, I come into the class, I plop on the ground, and you learn moves and get locked up and, and things like that. So far, to be honest, I know nothing, and I'm, I'm not very good. I was talking to the coach on Friday, and I said, how do you think I'm doing so far? I was just kind of, I guess, insecure a little bit in my, uh, my first week, and he's like, you're, you're doing pretty good so far. Uh, next week, you're going to start sparring people. And I'm just thinking, okay, this is going to be pretty fun. I'm going to lose some. I'm going to win some. And he basically says, you're going to lose every single time. Uh, you're going to be like a helpless lamb for the slaughter. You're going to be endlessly locked up, and you're never going to win. You're going to get choked and put in arm bars and ankle locks and, and so forth, because so much of it is technique. And I'm just thinking... That's not that encouraging. Uh, Am I that bad? Uh, Now, I say all this this morning, uh, not to make you feel bad for me. I actually just had no other way really to ease into the Passover this morning. (laughs) And in our passage this morning, we're looking at the famous Passover. And Passover is one of the most unique passages in the whole Bible, because at the center of it is thousands and thousands of helpless lambs that are sacrificed for the slaughter. Now, last week, at one point, we were looking at uh, Moses, who had received a mandate from God to go to Pharaoh and tell him to release his people. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, asked this question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? What he's saying, essentially, is everybody has their own religion. Everybody has their own God. Everybody has their own faith. Who is your God? What makes your God so unique? What's so unique about your faith that I should embrace it? That's essentially what he's saying to Moses. And there's probably no better passage in the Bible to answer that question than this famous passage. Because what we'll see this morning, front and center, what makes God so unique? What makes Christian faith so unique? What we'll see is at the very center, at the ultimate heart of spiritual reality, is the bloody death of a helpless victim. Said another way, and my main idea really captures this, Sacrifice is at the heart of ultimate spiritual reality. Sacrifice is at the heart of ultimate spiritual reality. Now, my outline is up on the screen, 
and we'll be looking at three main points today. Number one, the sacrifice of the lamb. Number two, the meaning of the lamb. And number three, of course, the fulfillment of the lamb. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we started a 13-week series in the book of Exodus just a few weeks ago. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It tells us how God frees the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt, and then he forms a very special relationship with them. A few weeks ago, in the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses, and he commissions Moses to go speak to Pharaoh, to order Pharaoh to release and free the Hebrew people. And at the burning bush, Moses and God, they go back and forth because Moses knows this is going to be an impossible task. Pharaoh is not going to be an easy sell. He's a tyrant. He's bad news. And so God says he knows. He says, Pharaoh's not going to listen. I already know that. He doesn't acknowledge God. He worships other gods, the Egyptian gods. And because of that, God's going to have to compel him with a mighty hand. Chapter 3, verse 19. He's going to have to show Pharaoh that he is God alone. And so last week, we saw the beginning of this judgment where God sends plagues one after another. And we learned last week each of these actions were somewhat humorous and were aimed at undressing and humbling the Egyptian gods. For instance, Heket, the frog god of the Egyptians, the way that God responded to this was thousands and thousands of frogs filled the land of Egypt. Or, for instance, Ra, the sun god. God responds to Ra by blotting out the sun. All of this was to show that God is God alone and that Pharaoh better listen. Well, what we find out as we read the pages of Exodus is that Pharaoh certainly does not listen. Uh, maybe he just sees these events as a string of bad events over a year or so. Maybe he concludes Egypt is just having a bad year. His heart, the Bible says, is hardened. He's filled with pride and arrogance. He has an unbending will. His decision is made. As we like to say, dictators are going to dictate. And so finally, God has had enough. He's going to turn the tables on Pharaoh. And just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians killed the, so many of the, the Hebrew male babies, so now God is going to turn the tables and he is going to kill every single firstborn in Egypt. Yet unlike Pharaoh, God is going to offer mercy. He's going to offer grace. He's not passive or silent. He's going to provide a means of escape, a means of rescue. And that rescue, that escape, that mercy is through the blood of the Lamb. And so this morning we'll pick right up where God himself is describing how to have this escape, how to have this rescue, how to apply this mercy. Verse 1 Chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Verse 4, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, and what he's about to do is so important that he changes their calendar. He says this month, what happens this month is so important that it's forever your first month. This month, probably around April, is how you now mark the beginning of your year. And he goes on, he says that every household on the 10th day of this month should get a lamb. If the household is too small, they should join up with another household and share the lamb together. And he says that this lamb should be a one-year-old male without blemish, that is, without broken limbs, without defects. And on the 14th day, the whole community should come together and kill, slaughter their lambs. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. That is, they should take the blood of this lamb, and smear it around the doorposts of their homes. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. The bread, of course, is a symbol of the haste and the quickness that they would need to flee Egypt. And of course, the bitter herbs, a reminder of their life in Egypt. Verse 9, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. A little bit graphic, but the point here is to keep the structure and the form of the lamb. So when they would be eating this lamb, they would be reminded it's, in fact, a lamb. Verse 10, And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. That is, they needed to eat the meal in anticipation for all that God was about to do, all the events he was about to set into motion where they'd finally be free. It is the Lord's Passover, verse 11, verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, God says he's coming. It's going to be ugly. Time is up. He's coming in fury and in wrath, but there's an offer of mercy here. And that mercy is through the blood of the Lamb. If they would put that blood on their doorpost when God comes through, he says they'll be passed over. A graphic way to put it, and this is intense, is that in every home that night, 
There would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. Now this really leads us to our first point, and it's this. The sacrifice of the lamb. Now sometimes when people hear about animal sacrifices, blood, and God's wrath in the Old Testament, they're quick to say, this cannot be God. They point out that he sounds like an ancient, primitive, bloodthirsty God worshipped by ancient, primitive, bloodthirsty societies rather than the God of love. For instance, in the Iliad by Homer, Agamemnon had to sacrifice his daughter in order to get good weather conditions. He needed to get the Greek fleet over the water to Troy, and it wasn't until he sacrificed his daughter to the gods that their wrath was appeased and his fleet was carried safely to Troy. But over and over again, what we find in the Bible is that God's wrath is not petty or spiteful like, say, ancient narratives or the Iliad. Rather, God's wrath is holy. It's settled. It's a just attitude or an opposition towards things that hurt people or things in this world that deface his creation. It's his displeasure towards sin. And over and over again in the Bible, what we find is that sacrifices, as graphic as they might be, have a much deeper meaning a much deeper and intricate design. They're not the kinds of sacrifices that uh, we might find with uh, novels or uh, epic tales like the Iliad, where irritated, bloodthirsty deities uh, need some type of atonement. Rather, in the Bible, they're much more complex. Uh, They're much more intricate. Now, some of us, We struggle with this concept of the wrath of God. It's a heavy topic. You certainly don't grow churches by talking about the wrath of God. Uh, One theologian, Miroslav Volf, early in his journey with God, struggled with this concept of God's wrath. And he said this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By dotting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. In this passage, God's wrath is burning. 
This is the final plague, the final straw. And he himself, he himself is going to come down and like a hot knife in butter, he's going to cut through everything. The Egyptians, the Hebrews, everyone and everything. He's the ultimate force in the universe. But he says there's an opportunity for mercy. There's an opportunity for pardon, for grace. And it's through a fluffy, cute, little innocent, helpless lamb that a person can be passed over, that they can find mercy from this heated wrath of a just God. Now, this is wild. This is just crazy. It's actually a little bit offensive to the modern person that deliverance could be secured and due wrath could somehow be taken care of by Sean the sheep or lamb chops. But what does this all actually mean? Well, this really leads us to our second point, the meaning of the lamb. The meaning of the lamb. Now, a lot of people also, when they read a passage like this, they also wonder, why can't God just forgive? Why can't he just deliver all the people without this mess? Why can't he just pass over the Hebrew people because he loves them? Why the blood on the door? Why the sacrifice? This is a God who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the God who said, let there be sun, moon, and stars, and there were sun, moon, and stars. Why can't he just say, let there be forgiveness, and there would be forgiveness? Why does there have to be a sacrifice? Why does there have to be blood? Well, the answer the Bible gives over and over again is that God is teaching something through this sacrifice. And what he's teaching is that the Hebrews needed God's mercy and grace just like everybody else. They may have been worshiping the right God. They may have had the right doctrine and theology. They might have had the right religion. They may have not even been the oppressors. But at the end, they were just in need of God's mercy and grace like everybody else. And what the sacrifice teaches here is that God cannot forgive without payment. Sin or offense creates a debt. It doesn't matter who the person is. Somehow that debt has to be paid down. Now this isn't just a circular argument for the sake of theology or a message. This is actually true for every one of us. Psychologically, if someone really, really wrongs you, there is a debt. There's something that now exists between you and the person who's wronged you. There's a debt. It can't just be ignored. That offense just can't be wished away. It's there. And there's really only two ways that we can get rid of the debt. On the one hand, you can make that person pay. You can find ways to cause hurt right back. You can exclude them. You can mock them. You can insult them. You can pour out your wrath on them. And as you see them paying for it, you sense that that debt is being paid down, and at a certain point, it's gone. That's one way. Now, I wouldn't advise this way. Uh, if you do it this way, if you make people pay for what they've done to you, it 
at the end will turn you into a hard person. It will dehumanize you. But that's a topic for another time. So that's, that's one way. On the other hand, the other way to get rid of a debt is to say, I'm going to forgive you. Now, of course, that's the right thing to do. But forgiveness is deep. Forgiveness isn't cheap. Forgiveness has to do with you paying down the debt. It means that when you want to slice up the reputation in front of others, you don't. It means when you want to just think hateful thoughts about that person and how awful that person is, you don't. It's about absorbing that offense in yourself. That's costly. Forgiveness hurts. It doesn't feel fair, but that's forgiveness. The point is, if there's been a real offense, there's no way just to say flippantly, all is well. There's a debt there. There's something there emotionally, psychologically. The debt has to be paid down. Someone has to pay. Someone has to bear the price always. Now, as bad as the Egyptians were to the Hebrews, the truth is they all needed God's mercy. They all needed his grace. They're all imperfect. They all had a debt. They all had sin. And enter this morning the sacrificial lamb. Through the sacrifice, God shows that there is a way to pay down the debt. There is a way to not receive God's wrath and do justice deserved tonight in the land. And the sacrifice shows that the way to pay down that debt can be through someone else. It can be through an alternate, through a substitute. The technical term, of course, for this is substitutionary atonement. And this is the heart of of ultimate spiritual reality. It's the central reality of both Judaism and Christianity. It means a substitute or a third party dies for our debt. A substitute or a third party takes our place for our sin. And here in the substitutionary sacrifice of this lamb, God's showing them that his nature is not cheap forgiveness. There's no such thing. He's showing them that there's a way for the debt to be paid down, to pass over them, for his wrath to be satisfied. And that's it through it being received by an alternate, it being received by a substitute. Now, the text tells us the Hebrew firstborn are actually spared that night. God comes through like a hot knife and butter, and the Hebrews are spared And this eventually leads to them being freed from Egypt, as we'll read about next week in the actual Exodus. And all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they look back on this event and they celebrate it annually as the Passover. But as you read the pages of the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that they didn't see this as their ultimate deliverance. It was real. It was amazing. The firstborn sons were spared but it wasn't the ultimate deliverance that they longed for. They knew they needed a deeper one. They knew they needed a total salvation. They knew they had a bigger problem, and that was that there was a real debt that needed to be paid down. 
And as important as that lamb was, they knew they needed another lamb, which really leads us to our third and final point this morning, the fulfillment of the lamb. Fast forward a few thousand years, and sitting in an upper room in Jerusalem is Jesus of Nazareth. Years earlier, when John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. It's Passover. And he gets his disciples, Jesus does. He gathers them. He says, Let's celebrate Passover tonight. And they all get together. But when Jesus stands up, there's two enormous shocks that happen in that moment. First, when he stands up and begins to speak, he's in the place of the father of the household, he's the presider. And the presider's job at the Passover meal is to stand up and explain the meal. And what the disciples expected him to hear, since they would have done this every year as Jews, was for him to point to the bread on the table and say, this is the bread of our afflictions. Our ancestors suffered in the desert wilderness so that we could be free. But instead, Jesus gets up, He takes the bread and he says, this is my body. This bread is my body. In other words, he's saying this bread is the bread of my affliction. This bread is my broken body. This bread has always been pointing you to something greater. And now that reality is right in front of you. The second shock is that there's three things basically at a typical Passover meal. You have the unleavened bread. There's Jesus showing the bread, breaking the bread. You have four cups of wine. There's Jesus pouring the cup. And you have the lamb on the table. But in the Gospels, uh, these Gospel accounts, there is no reference to a lamb at any table. It's totally absent from the table. And of course, the reason is because the lamb himself is at the table. In other words, the lamb was deliberately removed from the table because Jesus Christ is saying, I am the lamb. The lamb has always been pointing to something greater. And now that reality is right in front of you. Now, what those lambs meant for hundreds of years was that God rescued them through a substitutionary sacrifice. The blood of these lambs showed that there is a way for God to pay down the debt of sin. There was a way for God to pass over them. God's nature is not cheap forgiveness. But the lambs showed that this wrath could be satisfied by receiving it by an alternate, by a substitute. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he is the ultimate reality. The book of Hebrews sums it up later saying this, It's impossible for the blood of goats and animals to take away sins. But when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. But then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once 
and for all. He's everything that those lambs ever pointed to and more. It's through his suffering and through his death what he's trying to say here that we can find ultimate deliverance. It's through his pain that that debt can be paid down in full. Jesus Christ essentially is God saying, I forgive you and entering into our humanity and in his body absorbing over and over again our sin. Costly, painful, it doesn't feel fair, but that's forgiveness. God stepping into reality to pay down our debt and ultimately to save us to himself. On the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. As our substitute, Jesus takes the full wrath of God, the justice of God for our sin. And on the cross, when he dies, he says, it is finished. From the phrase, paid in full. In other words, believe in him today. Trust in him today. This book is all about him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I know this is not popular to say, but one day he will judge us. I know you don't grow a church these days by saying this, but there is accountability in this universe. We will be held accountable for our actions, for our lives. We are personally accountable to God for our choices and the life that we live. We will give an account. Our American standards of goodness and badness are not the standards that we're going to be judged by. We'll be, gu- we'll be judged by God's standards according to his vision for our lives. And in view of that, trust in the mercy of God this morning. Trust in the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. Trust to whom the whole Bible points. Jesus Christ, the one who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. The Lamb of God whose blood was spilled for us. Our sacrifice, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the one who can take away our sin as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our sin from us. He is the reality. Trust in him this morning. Believe in him this morning. Through him we have confidence and access to God the Father through his forgiveness, through his mercy. As we move to a time of the Lord's Supper, we'll get the privilege of celebrating just that reality this morning, but we'll get the privilege of doing it to our senses We heard it in our ears, but this morning we'll get the chance to taste it with our senses. Be reminded of his great forgiveness to you this morning. Let's keep extending that to others as we live for him. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.